Hello there, prom party. A quick heads up before we get on with today's episode about Almost Famous with our lovely friend Jacqueline Moore. We had a, a bit of a technical problem in the front end of recording, so you'll probably experience some moments during our most heated and animated where there will be some mic popping. I did some work in the back end of the editing process to minimize that and make it as inoffensive as possible, but hopefully that won't detract from your enjoyment of this episode in any way, because it is one of my favorites that we have had in quite some time, and I really enjoy the discussions we have about today's film. Anyway, on with the show. I don't want to be your merch girl, I want to be your goddamn idol, and I don't want to have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I... Welcome back, Prom Party. Hello. If you can hear the sound of a very adorable hound dog, she's here. She's downstairs and is not taking separation well. (laughs) No, she is a pandemic pup. She's very sweet. We love her very dearly. But she is making sure that everyone knows she's singing the song of her people today. So as, as per usual, if you can hear her, that's a little bit of flavor for you. If you can't hear her, Harmony's good at her job. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are covering a film that a lot of you were really excited about when we mentioned it on the Patreon. I think this one got more comments than any other title. Uh, It definitely did, which is fun considering this. This is a movie centered around a teen boy and boyish men, and yet the most interesting thing is all of the women. Absolutely. And that's why this definitely fits under our umbrella. And since we've expanded our scope a little bit on This Ends Up Prom, this is a movie that we feel fits right at home. But today, we are not alone. We have a guest. Our dear friend Jacqueline Moore is joining us. You may know her work from Dear White People, Queer as Folk, and just so many other cool things. She's just also a beautiful, wonderful, talented, bisexual, tall girl. We love her dearly. And she brought us this film today. So everyone, please welcome Jacqueline Moore. Hi, thank you for having me. Long time, first time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just excited to have you here on the mic, and because it's like any excuse to talk to you and hang out is obviously marvelous, but now there's like a purpose. And also, it dragged you over to our house, and then we get to actually hang out. So It's true. I love coming over here anyway, so why not put a mic in front of it? <laughs> perfect, perfect. So before we like get started, I just want to know why Almost Famous? Of all of the movies that you could have brought to us, why this title? I think this movie meant a lot to me as a... I, you know, I saw this movie when I was about the age of the main character, uh, so I was about 15, 16, and at that point, I don't think I knew with language that I was a trans woman, but I definitely was feeling some kind of way. Um, and <laughs> beyond the fact that I find the movie like very, I think it's a really well-made movie. I think it's beautiful. I think it's really inspiring. I, I think the way it talks about what how art makes you feel, um, like that just like really spoke to me then and still speaks to me uh, rewatching it for this. Um, I, I really love Cameron Crowe's writing at this time. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's very much like in the pocket uh, during this period of, you know, this and Jerry Maguire. And um, so I, I like it in those ways. But I think 
this is a pattern I would see with a lot of movies of this era, which is that movies where there was like a nice guy who like had a crush on a girl who didn't see him and realizing in time something that the character never realizes, which is that like, oh, I just wanted to be her. And I feel like that's the lens through which like I understand William and Penny Lane in this movie is that idea of I, for me, it's like, oh, I get having that kind of crush and then realizing it's like, oh, I just want to be this girl. Oh yeah. Like he adores her, but when you expand it out to like, you know, various different kinds of coming of age, because you and I obviously have a different one than a lot of other people. There's a, he adores her, but he's pro he could be processing it through a crush or love because it's a strong feeling. And it's like, well, that's what it has to be. What else could it be? Yeah. And I think the same is true with like, you even look at his relationship with his older sister and the ways in which like from the, you know, there's a time jump early in this movie and the ways in which he sort of replicates his older sister in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he goes from being this sort of goody two shoes kid to being a kind of like loving all this things that his older sister who ran away loved. And I just like, I really, there's something about being a young boy and being surrounded by women. There's also a lot of moments where he's one of the girls and that's something he struggles with uh-huh. uh, on tour. I just like, this movie gave me so many trans feelings as a kid and I don't think I processed them at the time as trans feelings. But <laughs> I love hearing that though. And I especially love the, the part that you're bringing up with Anita. So Zoe Deschanel, which is in the teen canon, we see so many instances where young girls are inspired by their big brothers. Like, oh, I'm going to play baseball because that's what my brother did. Or I'm really into motocross because that's what my brother does. Or I'm really into this because that's what my dad does. But we don't often see the inverse where a little brother is really inspired by either their older sister or their mom or any of the maternal figures in their life. And Almost Famous is pretty much entirely about a boy whose entire worldview is being shaped by the strong women in his life. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's a movie. It's interesting. I remember talking to a friend right after I transitioned about how this was one of my favorite movies, both growing up and still, um, Mm -hmm. it's a movie that I definitely have watched more than most, uh, movies. And she responded by being like, well, now that you're a woman, you're not going to like it as much. And I was like, oh, I like, and you know, being a, a baby trans woman who's, you know, a lot of people tell you welcome to womanhood a bunch in ways that are uh-huh. super annoying. Um, I kind of took that at face value and then I watched it and I was like, I disagree. I love this movie in a whole different, I feel like I love this movie even more now understanding what you just said, BJ, which is like, this is a movie about like the influence of these women and like them being the you know, there they are mis- obviously there are a lot of women who are mistreated in this movie, but there's I don't know, I think the center of the movie is is almost exclusively these women. I agree completely. And I mean, I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that Penny Lane is also infinitely the most interesting character in this entire movie. One hundred percent. She is it's such a great character, it's such an amazing performance too by Kate Hudson. Um I just Everything about her, the idea of reinventing yourself, the idea of, you know, for most of the movie, we don't know her name. We never really know what her age actually is um, in a very clever bit of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think there's 
there's something that feels very self-made about her. Um, I just, I, I, I find her so fascinating. Well, especially because like, there's this, this, the authenticity of like realness, man, the music's real and the, these people are real. And there's, there's this very classic rock star or at the very least like successful music celebrity of like reality and what that is. But like, you find out that all of the guys in this are also just making up personas being like, no, you're supposed to be the mysterious guitar player. <laughs> yes. And she, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, and the movie goes out of its way, especially towards the end to make this point over and over again, which is that she is like, she's the real one that like everybody else, including those rock stars, like they recognize they don't always treat her with value, but like, even when they are mistreated, there's like a real recognition of like, she was the best of us. Like she, she was what we were all chasing was like this feeling like she embodied it. I don't know. And it's, it's also, there's something interesting about making yourself art in some way. She, she is a character that is also performance art in some way. I, I just, I'm so fascinated by her. Absolutely. And before we dive in, too much deeper. Um, if somehow someone has never seen Almost Famous and you had to explain like a little synopsis or logline of what this movie is about, uh, what would you tell them? Um, Almost Famous is a wildly, this part's crazy, uh, autobiographical movie by Cameron Crowe um, about a 15-year-old boy who somehow, through a very strange set of circumstances, ends up getting to write a cover story for Rolling Stone um, where he goes on the road with, uh, a band for years. And this is the sort of episodic tale of what it is to be a teenager on the road with a band that you, you idolize, um, and the people you meet along the way, the girl you fall in love with, the uh, yeah, all, all of that. And this is Cameron Crowe's second appearance on this show. Uh, obviously, Fast Times was our first one, which I feel like that's the appropriate one that should end up first on this show. But Cameron Crowe will be like a weird front runner, uh, like sleeper of somebody who ends up on this show all the time because so much of his work weirdly ends up being in like the coming of age sphere, even though I don't think people think of Cameron Crowe when they think of like the creatives who work in the coming of age space. Like, I don't think people recognize that that's what all of his movies are kind of about. Even when they're about people in their 20s or 30s, they're still people figuring their shit out, um, which I think is fascinating. Um, but before we break this apart even more, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hello there, prom party. This Ends at Prom is made possible through the support of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisendsatprom. There, you'll be able to get access to the show's schedule at the start of each month, playlists curated by yours truly, our Sadie Hawkins dance mini-episodes where we discuss teen boy movies, our musical milestone episodes where we discuss iconic artists and moments in teen-oriented music, and we are currently re-watching and discussing Freaks and Geeks. All of these new episodes, as well as our extensive back catalog, are available in tiers starting at just $1. If you aren't able to support right now, we get it, times are tough, then all we ask is that if you can, give us that five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast, and maybe share us with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to the movie. 
Alrighty, so Almost Famous came out in the year 2000. So this is following American Pie and kind of the, the gigantic change that happened in 1999 where we were just flooded with teen movies and then a huge sex comedy changed everything. So Harmony, what kind of context are you bringing to the table today for when this movie came out? So to keep it kind of brief, because, I mean, we just did American Pie and it really just shapes the landscape. This is... A film that kind of sits in, in, in two in two spheres, because this is an Academy Award nominated film like four times over. And that's not something we cover on this podcast very often, because the coming of age sphere and the Oscars never shall these two things meet like these, they're, they're wildly separate. But Cameron Crowe, he does what he wants. He gets what he wants. And I think the fact that Jerry Maguire was so successful, basically, they gave him carte blanche to do whatever he felt like it. And that that was this. And it, it kind of seems like an appropriate time for this movie to be coming out because it is the 20-year nostalgia cycle. And the thing that I find weird about the nostalgia cycle is we had Dazed and Confused earlier in the decade, and it has built up like considerable cult following by the end of the 90s. You have That 70s Show, which is popping off. You have like Freaks and Geeks, which is going on around this time, which is like 1980, but it's ostensibly the 70s. Yet, I think it's the turn of the millennium, and we don't care about old. Like, in the way that, like, I remember being a teen and everyone gave a shit about at least the big bands. Like, oh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Nirvana. I don't think people gave a shit around the millennium because we were thinking of the future and not the past. And on top of that, again, this is this is a post-American pie world where scary movie road trip and dude where's my car are three of the biggest teen films that are going on at this time and they are all some of the dumbest fucking movies <laughs> and if you really want to like chart these two things look at like sean william scott being in road trip dude where's my car and american pie all in the stretch of two years and making like ludicrous money in all of those and poor sentimental jason biggs gets saddled with like loser and boys and girls and those go nowhere now granted Boys and Girls doesn't have the best script, but like I stand by my point that we don't want sentimentality. We want dumb fun at, in the year 2000. I think that's something that's really interesting to keep in mind, too, because I feel like as much as Almost Famous is a coming of age story, I mean, our protagonist is a 15 year old. This movie feels like it was always marketed towards adults. Uh, this doesn't feel like a movie where they were trying to chase teenagers uh, because, again, you know, teen movies are time capsule movies. They're trying to hit what is cool now. Um, but this is a period piece. So they're not looking at teenagers. They're looking at the people who would have been teenagers at this time period. Um, but Harmony, you brought up something really interesting about the poster um, and and why, why you think this movie is more of a teen girl movie than it is anything else. So aside from the fact that like sex hijinks are nowhere near the forefront of what this movie is, even though like sex orbits this movie like it's not really you don't see it and you don't see a lot of nudity but it's around the entirety of the film but the poster is Kate Hudson's face and it says like from the director of Jerry Maguire and I don't know a lot of teens who were jazzed on Jerry Maguire that's more of like an adult film I think so seeing that and like it not being like a provocative thing it's just her face it feels like it wasn't marketed towards like carnal, lusty teen sentimentality that boys had around this time. 
Definitely. And I think that the one-two punch of like a woman's face and Jerry Maguire, it like weirdly kind of feels like this is a movie for the moms who wished that they could have been groupies in the 70s. Like this is your way of like living out that fantastical dream. Um, I don't know, because I remember the only reason I saw this movie was because my my best friend, um, the one who will forever remain nameless on this podcast because she's a lawyer now, um, <laughs> she was like, you got to watch this movie. It'll change your life because we were super into like classic rock when you're in high school like that was a huge deal for us and uh we watched it and we both had the like the the feeling of oh I want to be this and she was like oh I'm Penny Lane and I was like I know my place I'm Sapphire I get this um (laughs) low key the best character (laughs) Uh, Bulk is just magical truly my favorite (laughs) um but that was you know my introduction to it because if it wasn't for her I don't know if I ever would have sought this movie out oh you would have you would have gotten there, don't you worry. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, Jacqueline, what brought you to this movie when you were younger? Um, so I was working at Blockbuster at the time, and we were allowed to rent five movies for free um, uh, at all times. And so I just watched everything. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I think I was working my way through Oscar-nominated movies at the time, and I you watch a lot of stuff that, you know, especially even a year or two after the Oscars, you look back at some stuff that was nominated and you're like, that made no impression. You don't have strong feelings about, I don't know, the piano. (laughs) You know, me and the piano go way back. No, that (laughs) one doesn't, doesn't, a lot of them don't after, you know, a couple years, you're like, Oh, I guess they serve as a time capsule, but they don't necessarily serve as like these movies all hold up wonderfully. Mm -hmm. And so this was probably in 2000, Let's see. It would have been like 2004, 2005. So a few years after this movie. Um, And I'd been working my way through the Oscar movies and they were fine. And then this movie, I remember where I was was in the basement of uh, my house in Northeast Ohio. And I watched this movie and as soon as it finished, I watched it again. Mm -hmm. This was one of those movies that as soon as I saw it, I was like that. I don't know what that is, but that sums up everything I want in life right now, like moving away, leaving your home behind, mm-hmm. chasing art, um, trying to be a writer, you know, it, having a mentor like Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie. <laughs> he's so um, cool. Like he, he, he's kind of like scummy, but he's really cool. <laughs> the best. Such a good Philip Seymour Hoffman performance uh-huh. too. Um, but there's an idealism to this movie that I think just – just kind of knocked me over and still knocks me over. There's something about, I think what you said about sincerity being sort of out of fashion at the time mm-hmm. um, really resonates because I think what resonates for me with this movie is how sincere it is and how it's, it's just like very capital R romantic about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I really, I just love that t- so much. Yeah. And specifically you and I are both from Northeast Ohio, from the greater Cleveland area. Yes. And BJ obviously is from the greater Chicago area, which is Chicago's its own thing. But so much of this movie and this tour takes place in the middle of America. It's across the heartland and across the Midwest. And there is this dream when you are there of getting out. Like there's hope. Like, you don't even have to, like, be talented. You don't have to have a career. You could just be some kid faking your way onto a bus and escaping. Like, there's there's so much optimism in that. Yes, and and I think what's interesting is watching it now, there are these moments where I see the other side of it, where, like, 
there's something very fascinating to me about Russell, you know, not to get too far ahead of the movie, but like there's a long period where Russell wants to stay in the Midwest and not continue on the tour. Billy Crudup's character, the, you know, the guitarist. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something interesting about watching this movie as a young person. Not that we're not young still, but watching this movie as a teenager (laughs) and just wanting to get out and see the world and do these adventures and, and chase art and make art. And then watching this movie as a person in your thirties and being like, Oh, I get, I get the part of this artist who's burned out and is like, it'd be so great to just like stay in Topeka, Kansas forever and like never (laughs) see anybody again. Yeah. I, (laughs) I've been having like a low key existential crisis for the last like, I don't know, year (laughs) where like every other day I'm like, I just want to quit my job and go offline and never be public ever again. And so, yeah, that definitely resonates with me watching this as an adult in a way that it never could have as a teenager. Um, But since we're, you know, talking about teenagers, let's talk about William as a character. How do you feel about him, Jacqueline? I love William Miller, William Miller so much. I think Patrick Fugit is incredible. Every time I see this movie, I just want him to be in more movies. Mm -hmm. I know he's still acting. He still pops up and stuff, but he's just, this performance is, so good, and characters like this in movies are often just insufferable. Uh-huh. And I, they feel like narcs. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, th- I really think his performance walks this line so beautifully of like never, at least to me, I don't find him insufferable. Like, mm-hmm. I find him very charming. Um, I really like how embarrassing he is. Mm-hmm. I like that this is a movie that doesn't try to make him cool. Like, I like that he makes a fool of himself over and over again. There's the scene uh, backstage at the first concert where he tries to pretend like he, he's talking to Penny Lane about like the continental Hyatt house. And Mm -hmm. he's like, you know about the continental Hyatt house and Penny kind of smiles to herself and goes, I think I've heard of it. And we know (laughs) she knows all about it. And she is just totally clocking him as this dork. Who's he's just a Mark. Yeah. He's a Mark. He's totally a Mark for all this. And it's, I just find there's there's something really pure about that. And I love that even as the movie is sort of a an arc of him going from wide-eyed and bushy-tailed to sort of jaded about the whole thing, he's still, you know, by movie's end, he's still, like, listening to music with his family and, like, loving this. And we know he grows up to be Cameron Crowe, who fetishistically obsesses over this period and these things <laughs> still. So I, I just, I don't know. I love this character. I really love... I feel like there were so many girls that I had crushes on like Penny Lane um, that in hindsight, I just recognize so much wanting to be a part of be one of the girls. And I think there's something deeply fascinating about William Miller's sexuality in this movie, uh, which is present the romance of the movie. Also um, I watched the commentary and he, the Patrick Fugit apparently had a massive crush on Kate Hudson in real life. <laughs> There's a moment early in the movie where they're standing outside the venue and she talks about wanting to go to Morocco and take him with her. And she asks like, do you want to come? And he goes, yes. And he kind of like steps on her line mm-hmm. and she, Penny Lane says, are you sure? And he goes, ask me again. And she says, do you want to come to Morocco? And he goes, yes, yes. And it turns out that's not scripted. That was (laughs) Kate Hudson making a joke about how eager 
he was to say yes. And so she says, are you sure? Oh. And he goes, ask me again. Can you say your line again? Mm-hmm. And then she does the line again and he does it again. And Cameron Crowe just found it in dailies and put the whole thing in. I love and that. it like captures that feeling so well. I just, I think this movie could suffer from manic pixie dream girl itis, but I think it avoids it in some ways, at least in my opinion, because I think it is aware that Penny Lane is deeper than the way the men are perceiving her. The movie's opinion of her and the characters opinions of her are not the same. Call me if you need a rescue. We live in the same city. I think I live in a different world. (laughs) Speaking of the world, I've made a decision. I'm gonna live in Morocco for one year. I need a new crowd. Do you want to come? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You sure? Ask me again. Do you want to come? Yes. Yes. Gotta call me. Okay. It's all happening. It's all happening. It's all happening. I agree completely, and I... I think that like the find of Patrick Fugit is unbelievable. Um, so a little backstory for those that don't know, he was a self audition tape that came in because one of his friends was auditioning for it. And I've read a lot of interviews with Cameron Crowe talking about this casting and I just love this line. Uh, this is from an article in the independent where Crowe says he was a pure soul, an authentic Utah kid with a bowl cut and a funny put upon manner. He waved his arms a lot around a lot and he made us laugh. And I think that that's so very sweet. And Cameron Crowe also has talked about how he did his best to keep him as like innocent as possible on set. Um, and apparently Patrick Fugit thought that Almost Famous was about politics. Um, when he was auditioning, he didn't realize what it was. Um, so <laughs> he also told The Independent, I told Cameron Crowe that I wasn't into music at all. He said that he liked Green Day and the new Chumba Wumba album. So then, <laughs> so then Cameron Crowe gave him a bunch of music to be like, all right, here you go, kid, listen to this, and then recorded his reactions to it. So the the too long didn't read of that is that Petra Fugit basically got his job from doing a react video of like Cameron Crowe being like, here's Zeppelin kid, how do you like it? And him being like, this music's changing my life. But with, with all due respect, that kid had no idea how fucking legit Chumbawamba is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very good point. Um, but also because of his age, I mean, he has to have his mom on set, which means that his experience on the movie is going to be entirely different than everybody else that he's working with, for the most part, who are all at least 18 or older. There were a couple other teenagers. Anna Paquin was a teenager at the time, uh, for example, but a lot of the actors were like the main actors are adults so they can kind of do what they want but Patrick can't do that he has to go to like tutoring in the middle of the day and he has to like have mom's approval so he doesn't get to be in the rock and roll hijinks what I think is just perfect for this movie and this character yeah and like speaking of the mom I think a lot of what this character has trickles down from the mother character which It's really refreshing to see an overbearing, like, protective mother, and it's not in any way rooted in religion. 
Yes. Oh, I love that. That's such a great point that, that she is overbearing. She is painted as, I think one of the things that's really amazing about the way uh, Francis McDormand's character is painted is that she is painted as ridiculous, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, she is not demonized. Like it's clear she loves her kid. And like, there's actually a really wonderful arc happening of she drove her first daughter away through being overbearing and is Mm -hmm. now overcorrecting by allowing him to go on tour. And it just, there are so many moments where I don't think movies about teenagers, and this is a movie about teenagers, even if it is nostalgically so, Mm -hmm. but there aren't that many movies about teenagers that I feel like give really nuanced, deep character arcs to struggling parent figures. Like I really, you know, it's hard not to have your heart break for her, even as she seems ridiculous at times. I, I just, it's such an incredible performance too. Yeah. And also I feel like there's this like subconscious thing about how she's treating her two children differently, where if you, maybe this is just me as like the younger sibling in my family, but I feel like Zoe Deschanel in this role, like as the sister would be like, Oh, of course you let him do what he wants because like you love him more and he's the favorite and he gets like more leniency. Yes. A hundred percent. And it's, it is interesting because this is a movie that both presents both teenager perspectives of the mom very clearly mm-hmm. while also giving almost a, like we, the, we as the audience are a little omniscient and that we get to see, I think her for herself too. And we get to see the way in which she has, she feels like she has messed up mothering her daughter. And now we feel the way she feels like she has messed up mothering her son. And it just, this is a movie that has so much going on at once that it shouldn't all work. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like it really does. And I think that's so so remarkable. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up the point of that. She doesn't feel like, I don't want to say like cartoony, but that's the way that I'm going to present it because we've seen this character in other films and nine times out of 10, she's Lynn Shay in Detroit Rock City, uh-huh. where she is just out of control, like, like so over the top that it becomes unbelievable, but like in a fun way, because obviously Detroit Rock City rules. But you have Frances McDormand doing this like incredibly restrained performance for her, which is really lovely to see. But this character does have so much depth and going on. And I also love that there's an immediate buy-in with respect from everybody that William's dealing with, where they're like, you know, you raised a great kid, just so you know. Like, they, they're they all affirming her motherhood at every turn. They're not being like, hey, we're going to give your kid blow. Like, they're being so respectful, which I think gets lost in a lot of these movies. Um, anything that romanticizes, like, rock and roll, I think it, it's all about, like, we're intentionally trying to scare the straights. Uh-huh. But in this, they're like, you know, you, you did a good job. He's a lovely boy. <laughs> oh, it's funny, too. The That scene with Sapphire on the phone... Uh, where she talks to the mom and says, mm-hmm. first he respects women and he loves women. And let's take a minute to like appreciate that. <laughs> like, I think there's something really interesting about gender politics in this movie um, mm-hmm. and the way in which th- these women on tour are being taken advantage of in some way, obviously. But they all, I I feel like the movie makes a really good point of have, giving them all a good deal of agency in doing this. And that's obviously they're very young and that gets complicated. And I know we're going to talk about 
the complicated politics of some of that because mm-hmm. it is hard not to talk about uh, groupy culture uh, with this movie. But I think there's something really interesting about the way that this movie walks the line because it captures what it feels like to be a teenager who thinks like, I'm mature enough for this, mm-hmm. who thinks like, I want to go to the big city and do the whatever. Like I've, I've always been mature for my age. People have always told me that I, it's okay that I'm dating somebody significantly older than me. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And that's stuff that like when I was a teenager, I did and felt and that now as an adult, I look back and I go, Oh, you poor girl. <laughs> and I feel like this movie does a really good job of capturing both sides of that, where I totally believe all of these teen girls being like, we're all here because we love the music and like, I'm going on the road with humble pie and that's going to be everything. <laughs> but then also like as an adult watching it being like all these poor girls and that I just, I think the movie lets both of those things live simultaneously in a way that I think a lesser movie would either pretend like it's all good. No problem here. Or how depressing this whole story is like. And I think you're absolutely right in because groupie culture, to some extent, feels like it falls under, like, the sex work umbrella. Like, obviously, it's not the same in any way, shape, or form. But, there, you know, there's a little crossover going on there. And I feel like sex work is portrayed the same way in film, where it's either, like, I am 100% in control, everything's fine. If you judge me, you're an asshole and you're closed-minded. Or this is the most depressing, devastating thing that's ever happened. Like, there's really not a lot of nuance. Yes. There's not a lot of multiple truths being held at the same time. And I think this movie does a really good job on it. And it it's important to also note that because this is, you know, for the most part, extremely autobiographical on, on Crow's part, Penny Lane is based on real people. And they are real people that exist and who are still alive and have continued to comment about this. Um, Pamela Desbaris is obviously the the most talkative, I would say, of of the women that, that inspired Penny Lane. Um, she's also a little bit more critical. Um, she's done a lot of interviews over the years where she's talked about how her biggest complaint is that they don't embrace the word groupie. And instead they are like, oh, no, we're Band-Aids, we're different. And it's, and it's because that stigma of quote-unquote groupie exists. And it's really hard to have a nuanced conversation about that word when you only have like two lines in a movie to to really dive into it. So I get it. And then at the same time, she's like, but at the same time, I also recognize this is a movie that is, you know, being presented through the lens of a 15 year old. So it's going to feel a little bit more sanitized. It's going to feel a little bit more innocent because he wasn't in the thick of it um, the way that some of us were. And, uh, you know, something that I, I I go back and forth on is whether or not I would have liked to see Penny Lane and and the other girls like really go for it because I do think that there's a little bit of tameness. But, you know, at the same time, there's an Odie and Quaalude scene. So, like, we got plenty to work with here. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, there's plenty of stuff, but it's all from William's perspective. And he's not in the room when all that stuff's happening because he's a good boy. Exactly. And, you know, I know one of the other reasons why Pamela has been, you know, pretty critical of this film is she said that, you know, she wished that she had been consulted so that she could have, you know, told her own story. But then at the same and it also made it harder for her to sell a script on her own story because Almost Famous now exists. Um, So on those terms, like, no, I totally get it. But ultimately, like, this is a movie from William's perspective. So there is going to be an idealized look at what these women are doing. 
Um, but there was an article in Fashion Magazine that was looking at this movie from uh, like a 20-year post-lens, um, also like post-Me Too. But something that I thought that was really, really fascinating is talking about this era of groupies and what makes them different than, say, like today's stan culture. Um, and it says, the things that the women in this movie do are incredibly important parts of the music industry, says Dr. Paula Harper, a postdoctoral fellow in musicology at the University of Washington in St. Louis. The way that which band-aids navigate connections and curate parties is actually akin to public relations and marketing work. This is labor that they would be paid for if they were men and not negotiating whether they were also sexually available or not. And I think that's a part that gets left out of like the groupie culture conversation is so many of the aesthetics of the rock stars that we know today. When you think about like Jimmy Page's shirts and Led Zeppelin or anything that Mick Jagger wore, a lot of their fashion was given to them by their groupies who were like, you look stupid. Here's a fringe vest and (laughs) made them look really cool. And like that whole aspect of their life kind of gets erased because everyone's like, oh, they were just, you know, sleeping with the band. And, like, sure, maybe that was part of it, but that wasn't the whole thing. Like, they they were more than just, like, sex objects. But because the age thing gets complicated, no one ever wants to talk about the fact that a lot of these women legitimately were muses, in a way. And that's its own complicated conversation. I think that's absolutely right. And I think what's what I like about this, the way this movie presents it, is that I feel like this movie is being agnostic about making a judgment on, do I believe this is true? I think I believe this is true. <laughs> I think this movie is pretty agnostic about making a judgment on groupie culture. Oh, well, I should say Band-Aid culture because they do make slightly that distinction, mm-hmm. which I agree, I think, is to like distance themselves from that word um, because what she describes is also just gr- groupie culture. <laughs> like, it's like groupie plus yeah, yes, exactly. It's we're groupies, but we also love the music, which I think most groupies would say we we do too. Yeah. Uh but I do think this movie it is somewhat tame. You don't really see much sex. One character has the joke about blowjobs at the beginning and then mm-hmm. um and then you know, you get a quick glimpse of like topless Kate Hudson like partying with uh Billy Crudup, Penny Lane and Russell Hammond. Um but uh I do I do think that like groupie culture is complicated and has contains all of these things where there was you know sexual politics that are fucked up there there was age issues that were fucked up there there was sexual violence there at mm-hmm. times there were uh you know a lot of unpaid labor there was all of this stuff to it there was also a lot of stuff that like people who lived that life as groupies um still speak very positively about like these moments of inspiration of being a muse of inspiring the music of supporting the music of of being a part of it like and i think we still see that today in like a lot of people who just make fandom their entire identity Mm -hmm. um and i think this movie doesn't take a side on those issues this movie like sort of presents it maybe through a slightly sanitized lens but it also does show a character have an od as a result of this culture, it mm-hmm. does show our main character kind of, you know, have the big moment of standing up for himself and for Penny Lane by lashing out um, at this culture. So I don't know. It it, it feels like a pretty interesting uh, 
compelling depiction of this of this time period. Although I wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, so so the time period. This takes place in seventy three, so this is like fifty years ago, like on the dot, and culturally, it's so different. And even trying to apply like the year two thousand, much less the year. 2023 to the cultural lens of what this movie is is doing and handling is such a mixed bag because people want it to be one or the other. They want it to be all bad. They want it to be all good. And it's like, well, it's a bit of both. And it varied from person to person. There's plenty of people out there who they go, oh, my God, I slept with David Lee Roth. And it was like one of the most magical moments of being a, a teen in like the, the summer of 83 or whatever. Like there's these positive feelings to it. I think it gets into... Messy territory with, like, the age, obviously. But there is something to be said about that being the lifestyle and rock stars of this era learning from the rock stars of the 60s who learned from the rock stars of the 50s. And no one ever said, hey, maybe you shouldn't skeeve over 15-year-olds. Like, I know that you got started playing music when you were, like, 16 and you've never grown up as a result. But, like... Maybe you shouldn't do that. And that's just not a discussion anyone was having with each other because it was just part of being a rock star. You you get the chicks and sometimes the chicks are young. Yeah. And so Pamela DeBar talked about this with Fashion Magazine where she she's been very bold in saying that she was always of age whenever she did things. And she's like, I was well taken care of. I have no issues. And she goes, I would certainly not agree with musicians sleeping with underage girls now. Not that I agreed with it then, but it was a different time frame. Um, speaking to how much older men having sex with much younger women or girls was more quote unquote culturally acceptable in the late 60s and the 70s. She even cited Loretta Lynn, who was legally married at 15 as an example. And then she even says, I know how that sounds in today's world. You probably get shit for that, for even printing me saying that it was a different time frame. But you have to put things into context and perspective. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot in these conversations is that we're having these conversations now where we're looking back and realizing, oh, this is a bad thing. I mean, Harmony and I both have talked on multiple episodes, um, Daydream Nation, Assassination Nation, K-12, just to, you know, <laughs> give, you, give you some places to look for. But where we have talked about the fact that we were sleeping with people much older than us as teens and thinking, this is fine, everything's fine. And it's only been in our adulthood that we're able to look back and go, wait, that was not super chill. But in a lot of those instances, we also don't have these like terribly negative feelings in, a, in some of the situations. And so it's very strange how often people want to sort of moralize on behalf of people that they don't know and on behalf of experiences that they don't know because it is complicated it is nuanced and it is messy and we have to be comfortable or I should say uncomfortable with how messy it is and accept that it's going to stay messy. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I also dated people who were much older than me when I was young and you know, I there are some of those people that I feel bad feelings about. Mm -hmm. There are some of those people that I feel neutral feelings about. There are some of those people that I feel maybe, I don't want to say good, but like, you know, fine about. Uh Uh, um, And it's not to say that I look at that and go like, and therefore we should continue on that way. That was a good way of living. Young people should sleep with people. No, we know better. And like the world is improving in this way. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that like, when you look at this movie and one of the things this movie does so well is it's POV characters are teenagers. And because it's POV characters are teenagers, you're seeing it as they saw it. So 
when I was a teenager sleeping with someone much older than me, I didn't feel like I was being taken advantage of in any way. Mm -hmm. I felt like I have all this agency. I have whatever. This movie is depicting that from the perspective of these younger people. And also like it's, it's people making art about what actually was and how it actually felt, I think is important. Yes, and that's that's a big part of it, I think. I've seen a lot of people have discussions about this movie and just be like, oh my God, it's like really problematic about how it treats women. Or it was like even problematic in the year 2000 about how it handles like underage girls. And like, I would never use the word problematic because the movie doesn't paint it as good or bad. I agree with you that it's extremely agnostic about a lot of things because it's just depicting what it was like. Especially because this movie is so autobiographical. It's like... You're not endorsing it. You're just saying that this was how things were. Yes. And I think if if there's a lesson in this movie for the characters of this movie, it is about the way Penny Lane is treated in this movie. Like that is eventually where the plot turns. Now you can have totally fair conversations that I agree with about the fact that does Penny Lane eventually get reduced to plot mechanic? for two men to settle something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that does happen by the end of this movie, and that doesn't feel great. But, like, I just don't feel like throwing the baby out with that bathwater. Like, I think the fact that Penny is this character that, you know, at a period where so many Manic Pixie Dream Girls, the 2000s are mm-hmm. a, an era of Manic Pixie Dream Girls, um, Penny has, like, a dignity to her... There's like a full human there. She's like hiding bits of herself. She's putting on a manic pixie dream world. She actually talks about the fact Mm -hmm. that it's not her real name, that it's not that these people don't know her, that they don't know where she, you know, like they love the idea. They love the idea of her that she has created. And that itself is art. I just think, uh, I think it's really, I don't know. And look, if people don't like it, they, they can not like it, but it speaks to me. Uh, it, it speaks to me and it definitely, you know, not to put a trans, you know, headcanon onto something <laughs> because it's not there. But for my journey to becoming who I am, this movie was, I think, one that that definitely gave me the puzzle pieces to be like, why do I feel this way about this character? Why do I feel this way about that character? Who do I see myself as in this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, because there were so many characters that could have been versions of me. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I also end up feeling more like a sapphire than anybody. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like all of that makes so much sense. And like, yes, does she get boiled down to just the plot element by the end of the movie? Yes. But again, this isn't a movie following a set of characters so much as it's following these characters through the perspective of William. And I think that narratively, her just saying, I'm done with all of you is so much more satisfying and dignified for her where she's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to give you my address. I'm not going to connect you. You can't have my number. I'm not going to give Russell my name. And she just moves on with her life. And like, that's, that's better for her. (laughs) That's a great point actually, because even if it is in some ways a plot mechanic, she is the character who has the agency and makes the decision at the end to connect the two of them Mm -hmm. rather than giving her information, giving Williams. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing too is 
the movie ends with her following her dream. She gets to go to fucking Morocco. Yes. She finally gets to go. And this also makes me have the thought of like, oh, I wonder how old she actually is because she fully just buys a plane ticket by herself and no one questions her, um, which yes. I think is great. Um, but she she gets to do what she wants. She gets to follow her dream and it gets to be on her own terms, which I think is a thing that gets lost, like you said, when people do want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, is that nuance gets completely like it gets completely pushed aside when it's so important. And you even have when when William and Russell have their like little interview in his bedroom, which is so cute because Patrick Fugit looks so goddamn miserable and it's adorable and I love him so much. Uh, but when they have their little conversation, he even says, you know, I think we were both you know, really, really into her, but she felt like, no, we should be with each other. Like she ultimately is making the decision of like, I don't need you, but you two need each other. And I don't need to be part of this equation. I'm working my magic one last time because that's what she does as a Band-Aid is she is magic and she makes it happen. They end up on, you know, Rolling Stone. None of this works without her. Like none of it. She is the, the clutch of everything that happens in this movie. Penny, our friend, has gained another year, but long ago she threw it in gear. She rocked the South, the East, the West. Could we please get off this endless tour where we're Black Sabbath's fucking special guests? <laughs> she says she's retired, but we've heard that before. She chose us. In Penny Lane, we trust. She is a fan of this band. Much more so than us. Yeah. Yeah. Her magic being worked is such a good way of putting it. And it also like, that is the art that she is doing throughout the movie. Even like, you know, we've referred to it a couple times. There's this beautiful sequence where she sort of susses out William and asks how old he is. And they go back and forth. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite pieces of writing in the movie. And he he says 18 and she goes, me too. And then says, but how are, how old are we really? And then they mm -hmm. keep counting down ages. And as a result, we know William's 15. And some people take that scene to mean she is also 15 or 16, which I think it's pretty beyond just buying a plane. I think there are a lot of signs that that's not the case, mm -hmm. but rather like we are seeing her work her magic. Even in that scene, she controls these backstage spaces. She even, um, Plexia Aphrodisia, the best name in the movie, uh, Anna Paquin, <laughs> there's the scene where they go. Um, it's like the second scene where they're at the hotel and Penny and Russell are sort of looking at each other across the room and she's pretending not to see her, see him. And mm -hmm. Plexia is narrating the whole thing for William. And he goes, Oh my God, we have to stop them. And she goes, stop them. You were her excuse for coming. This mm -hmm. is, and it's like just so clear. This is all Penny's design. Yeah, she is. She is so in control of everything. And I think part of her lying about her age is also just to make sure she's always on the same level as the guys. She doesn't want to seem older or in a position more powerful than William. She wants to, you know, meet them on their level because they feel more comfortable with that. They're not intimidated, but also she can't be in a position where she's being exploited because she's in control. It's so smart and so subtle. <laughs> I think the idea of exploitation is interesting too because it's a movie that both of them are, both William and Penny are right about this. Mm -hmm. She talks about, 
she, there's a refrain through the movie that she says of like, you know, in the real world, if I, if somebody talked to me like that in the real world and he at one point goes off on her and is like, where does this real world of yours occur? Like, where is this? And, um, that's all, if I remember correctly, that's all part of, you know, when it comes out that she was sold for a case of beer Mm -hmm. in a bet. Yeah. And she's right in that she's making all these choices right up to that point. But when she finds out she was bet for a case of beer, there's this like, it's one of the best shots of the movie. They're in like a tent and there's like a golden light behind her. And she like turns to the camera and like moves one strand of hair out of her face and asks what kind of beer. And she's crying. She's clearly crying. And like, we see the real Penny Lane is hurt Mm -hmm. and we see her choose to be Penny Lane again. We see her put on the suit of Penny Lane again. And it just feels, I just, I'm, I'm every time I watch this movie, she becomes more like her character steps further and further into the foreground as, as just like a, an all time great cinematic creation. Absolutely. I think she's one of the most like fully realized characters that you get right off the bat, which is really lovely. And I go back and forth on this, but I've had this like running theory that who Penny Lane is as a teenager is who like Samantha from sex in the city was as a teenager. Like, like they have such a similar energy in the way that there is always kind of this like put upon confidence, but deep down, like there is something that's real in there. And the most beautiful moments are when it pops out and you can't help, but just like love and respect this woman who is so fully in control of every situation at any given moment. Um, Like they just feel like spiritual siblings to me in in a very weird way. I love that comparison. And I, I love the idea, what I think is so interesting about her is that she wants to be fully in control of every situation. And you can argue whether she always is. And I think there are a couple moments where she feels like she's fully in control and it slips. And I think what's so interesting is the first half of the movie, especially everything pre New York, mm-hmm. she feels pretty fully in control. Um, maybe with the exception of uh, everything pre the, the bet, everything pre the poker game, she mm-hmm. feels pretty in control. But the New York City section, there are just these moments where she seems like she seems like a young woman now who's struggling and we see the reality and we see the slipping and we see when Russell's girlfriend's there. And it just like there are all these ways where I like in that section, it's like really hard to feel. And it it feels crazy to me when people ignore this, like the movie feels very on Penny's side of all this. Mm -hmm. Like the movie thinks it's very, the movie thinks Penny is being mistreated and William, the main character of the movie thinks Penny is being mistreated. That's like the whole, you know, dissolution of the William and Russell and everybody on tour is about that. Um, And then the, the, I think we should probably talk about that sequence a little bit, that New York sequence, because it has a couple, it has Penny trying to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Um, which talking about her agency, I think is, it's probably something worth talking about. And the, the post killing herself walk in central park where she reveals her name and chooses to reveal her name. It also has the one moment of the movie that I think is the most indefensible and, and, and probably should be addressed, which is when William kisses her right after she's tried to kill mm-hmm. herself. Yeah. So I have two schools of thought on this. I have the obvious school of thought of, 
motherfucker, she is dying. This is so gross and weird. What is wrong with you? And then I have the other school of thought, which is this is a very sheltered 15-year-old boy, and this is some Disney Prince uh-huh. bullshit of like the kiss of love of will the kiss save of the love day. will save the day. And it's like that's not gonna work because he looks at her so longingly as she is swallowing a tube to have her stomach pumped. And like he looks at her like, This is the best day of my life. And it's like, oh, you are so dumb. Like you do not know what you did. And that's why I have, you know, those conflicting thoughts because my logic brain is like, this is fucked up. This is super fucked up and then the other part of me is like he does not know how fucked up this situation is and I think that's also a conversation that gets lost a lot when we talk about you know the quote unquote boys will be boys sort of mentality is that there are boys that legitimately don't know shit and are dumb as fuck and harm people because they are dumb as fuck and that scene is so hard to watch because I'm like I am trying so hard to give you the benefit of the doubt and that you do not know the severity of what is actually fucking happening here. But also, I wish you had common sense, but common sense isn't common. (laughs) No, but like this whole scene is, I mean, the band was hanging out with Bob Dylan, which they think is the coolest and then just would have, she would have died if William had decided to stay with them and not go after Penny. And I think that this specific scene is obviously it's, her at her lowest and her taking matters into her own hands as she does always. But this is him finally seeing being, being exposed to the dark side of, of the rock and roll world that they've been sheltering him from this whole time. And he gets the most extreme example of it. I think that's true. I think it's interesting. The kid on one hand, it's like, if it's going to have, like if that scene has to be in the movie, which I would argue, it doesn't have to be there. I don't think it needs to be there. Either. I really wish it wasn't there. Cause I think the scene, if he's just whole, if that scene plays exactly the same way and mm-hmm. he just holds her, um, is holding her up and is talking about how much he loves her. Mm-hmm. And then the doctor comes in. I think the movie plays exactly the same way. It also loses the, I guess slightly funny, but like, I think kind of dumb slut shamey joke of like, um, I'm going where many men have been before. Mm-hmm. I think is just kind of gross and unnecessary. No, um, if you want the funny line, it's when she's getting her stomach pumped and they play my sherry more, which is a <laughs> hilarious needle drop to a really dark situation. Yeah. And it's just it, that, that moment is the one blemish on this movie for me is the, the kiss. I just, it's so hard. And I think what makes it harder is that I know from listening to the commentary, but also, um, so my favorite movie of all time is The Apartment, the uh, Billy Wilder movie. Oh, that's what uh, Loser is a remake of. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, surprise. Oh, <laughs> I uh, I should rewatch Loser. Loser's um, awesome. I've already I've said that like three times on this show this year, I think. But Loser's awesome. I'm gonna watch it. But so uh, Billy Wilder and Billy Wilder is is Cameron Crowe's favorite filmmaker. That scene with the Quaaludes and the Doctor is almost verbatim taken out of. Uh, the apartment when Shirley MacLaine's character tries to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Um, the one major difference is that Jack Lemmon does not try to kiss a dying Shirley MacLaine. Right. <laughs> um, and it's just, it, it, it's so funny. Cause I feel like what people bring to this movie often about like sexual politics, especially post me Too, post. We know better now is this criticism of groupie culture which actually I don't think is fair to saddle the movie with because that was a real thing and this movie is capturing it. Mm -hmm. The one moment in the movie that I think is really fair to be like, we've come a long way in 22 years or 23 years is this moment of the kiss Mm -hmm. where 23 years ago, I think 
this moment is supposed to play as romantic. And now we see it for what it is, which is like, hey, dude, that's really fucking creepy. Why did you do that? Absolutely. And that scene in particular is also the one that Pamela DeBars is the most critical of, of any scene in the movie. Like the, the idea of not embracing groupie is a big sticking point for her, but she's like, that scene never would have fucking happened because none of us would have ever been so obsessed with a guy that we'd be willing to die for them. Like we loved them. We would, you know, support their music. We would take care of them. But she was like, I never in my life would have even thought about taking my own life because I got my heart broken. And I think that is also part of the quote unquote like romanticization of this time period that kind of happens because it's coming from Crow's perspective and why it probably would have been really beneficial to have any of these women consulted uh, to talk about it because then I don't think that situation would have been there. Yeah, it's interesting. I like that is where I think a character being a composite is so is always interesting because I am sure there are women from the seventies who, I mean, there are, there are women and men from every generation that have tried to kill themselves over people that love them. Um, it, it's weirdly the moment that the movie is most critical of groupie culture, <laughs> which is probably why she didn't like it too, is that it's like, it's a moment where it's like, Oh, there's a human cost to what these, to what, like the way these guys treat these people. Um, but I just, I wish, I wish he didn't kiss her. That's my biggest, I just like, I Shave wish. off 10 seconds of this movie. Shave off 10 seconds of this movie. Even, I really like, I like the the crazy untitled booth, bootleg cut that's like three hours long. I re- enjoy <laughs> that version of this movie too. And still those 10 seconds can go. I just think like it's so unnecessary. And it's so easy to not have them too. Like he can just have her and then cut to the hotel staff coming in. What did she take? Like that's all you need. It's, the sentiment is there. He can tell her he loves her and not also be assaulting someone who is possibly going to die. Like yes. it's so easy to not have it there. It's so it's yeah, it's, it is definitely the thing that has, that feels the most like, I can't believe they used to think this was cute. It's, it's really ridiculous. And that's why like when I first started talking about it and I brought up like the Disney prints of them of it all, because when we're kids and we watch it, we're like, Oh, how romantic. And then as adults, we're like, Wait, she's sleeping. This is not okay. Don't forget to remember yourselves as you are today. Full of hope. And the dream that everything is possible. Penny, no, wake up. And remember this 20 years from now. Well, now that I have your attention, uh, I know you've heard this before, and I've never said this to anybody. Well, nobody who didn't legally have to say it back to me, but, uh... Oh, God, why am I so nervous? You'll never remember this. I love you. And I'm about to boldly go where... many men have gone before. You know, I, I don't want to ever sound like somebody who's like, well, you know, who really needs defending are like men who prey on women. Like, we don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, I don't think William has any idea like what he's doing. Like, he doesn't get it because he's a little precious little snowball angel baby who, again, is doing something so fucking irredeemable. Like, it's horrible. But he doesn't know how horrible it is. It just, it, it, it's the real, it's the one moment that it r- really is a bummer for me in this movie. Um, 
But it does lead to this moment. Uh, doesn't drive you. You don't need it to get to the next moment. But the next moment of Penny letting William in and telling her the real name, which Lady Goodman is such a good uh, answer to that <laughs> uh, mystery, um, I think is such a a wonderful answer to the question that like has been going back and forth between them about like, what is the real world? And like, this is a moment where we're seeing how much of Penny is creation. And I think that's the idea that like there's artistry to what Penny is doing too, I think becomes very clear in this moment. Oh yeah. Especially because watching this movie in like our, our, our current very like online social media times optics like, just thinking about the optics of how this movie plays as a movie, or even that, like, people care about optics then, but in, like, a very 70s way of, like, how they are perceived, how they put themselves out there, and what that does for them. Like, the branding of that is so interesting to think about just in its time and now. I think it's very fascinating. And basically her letting him in at this point is, like, an equivalent of, Oh yeah, no, my screen name is Penny Lane, but like here's me offline. Yeah. Oh god, that's such a good way of putting it. And I'm glad that you brought up kind of the the online sort of thing because, you know, you look at groupie culture and groupie culture has not gone away. It's just evolved and it's evolved into what we now would consider stan culture. And because I've seen a lot of people say that, you know, stan culture isn't the same because, you know, oh, these were these were people that were following people around and they were living on their tour buses and, you know, X, Y and Z. And obviously those aren't things that can happen anymore. But that level of obsession and dedication is still there. It's just changed shape. Because now instead of, you know, professing your love for somebody in the sense that you are physically giving yourself over to them, you are making fan cams and you are making entire social media accounts dedicated to what this person is doing at any given moment for the the sheer fact of you want everyone else in the world to understand how wonderful they are through your eyes. On top of that, people like role play their favorite like celebrities or or niche micro whoever's online where they'll make fake accounts either to like exploit and get clout uh, maybe for financial game or just for like the funsies yeah it's it's so odd it is it's it's odd how stan culture and the groupie culture of this movie are both related and different bj you make i think a really good point about the ways in which they're connected, I, I, specifically the Jay Baruchel character, mm-hmm. the way he talks about, was it Led Zeppelin he's obsessed with? Yeah. Like, where he's talking about them, like, he touched this pen, he did that, like, that to me feels like something that could just as easily be like an Anna Darmus updates tweet. Now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, and and what's weird is because we've developed our own, like, micro-celebrities, like, the first thing that popped in my head was, like, Belle Delphine bathwater of, like, Gamer Girl bathwater. Oh, my and God. <laughs> it's, like, such a thing that people are hardcore into, but, like, Harmony, you're absolutely right in terms of, like, the role-playing aspect. Like, people are, like, their obsession is, okay, I'm going to say something really weird. Harmony and I talk all the time about how... Like, I just wish I could just fuse with you. I wish I could fuse with you. I love you so much. And it's always like this weird, Whoa, stupid thing. Y'all gay. It's real gay. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, it's real gay. But I feel like to some extent, like, that is what a lot of the groupies were back then. Because, yes, there were people like Pamela Armas and like Penny Lane Turi and people who 
it was more than sex for them. But Shout out to Cynthia Plastercaster. Yes, Cynthia Plastercaster. Like, there were people where it was more than sex to them, but there were people that it was sex. It was, I am so obsessed with you, I need to fuse with you, and the closest that I can do is just to get fucked by you. And that has now evolved into, I have to be a part of you, so I'm going to make my entire online persona who you are. This is an extension of my identity. I am one with you. Like, that's what it feels like has happened in, like... I don't know. AI is going to make it even weirder. And that's going to be true of so many things. AI is going to make it weirder. <laughs> is going to be a refrain. I think we're going to have uh, a lot of, it is interesting to think about. Did you, did y'all see the video of the guy from the 1975 kissing the girl in the front row of the concert? I think like once I saw it in passing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is like a thing, like maybe like a month or so ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he like came down and he checked her ID she, mm-hmm. I think she had had like a sign or something like, yeah, I think it was her birthday or something. Yeah. yeah. And, like wanting him to kiss her and like something. And he checked her ID and like asked her and then like kissed her and seeing the response to that is the other thing I wanted to talk about, about Stan culture or like hear what y'all thought about is this idea of like, it feels like there's a desexualization. There were so many people who were like, Oh my God, this, Oh my God, this clip. Can you imagine if that were me? I wish like, uh, but there were also a lot of people being like, this is wrong. Like, how dare he do this? Power dynamics. This is power dynamics. That was such an interesting case because it was like, well, she had a sign or whatever that she wanted this. She had a, a ID that said she was a legal adult. He asked her what she wanted. She affirmed. Mm-hmm. They kissed. And then it, it reminds me of that meme of like, I consent, I consent. And then Jesus is head being like, yeah. <laughs> I don't. Um, but like, I think there's something interesting about the desexualization of Stan culture in a lot of ways. And the idea that, that all of this stuff can become more intimate and more obsessive and more creepy at times. But when it becomes at all sexual, it somehow, I don't know. There's something interesting there. To me, it feels like the difference between like, having sex with someone and kissing someone where it's like you can have intimacy and it can mean different things, even though it's technically more or less obsessive than other things. Um, I, I mean, I, you're never going to have like a full consensus on what is and isn't cool for, with, when it comes to oh, like power course. dynamics and stuff like that. I think like for a discussion like that, the more key part is like, well, are they consenting adults and are they looking to achieve the exact same thing out of this? She wants to kiss. He says, cool, I'll give you a kiss. And then they move on. Or the idea of like, you know, a rock star saying like, cool, I want to get laid. And a woman going, cool, I want to suck your dick. Like, that's it. And then they move on. It gets complicated and weird when people are not copacetic about what they want. Like, Penny's in love. Russell doesn't want to be in love because he's married. And that's where things get complicated. And now you are not on the same page. And obviously, I'm not expecting like a rock star man child and you know, however young of a woman she is to be having open communication, especially when they have brands and personas to upkeep. But I think that having that openness is how you avoid this weirdness, but people are still going to see it as weird because power dynamics, no matter what. Definitely. And I mean, we've seen this happen in recent years um, and I'm leaving names out of it for obvious reasons, but we've seen this with a couple other like, you know, niche or like micro celebrities where they were under the impression that something was transactional and somebody 
you know, caught feelings or wanted more. And then immediately it gets turned into, well, I wanted to date this person and they used me for sex. And it's like, did they use you for sex or was that the agreed upon thing? And you were not being honest about your intention. Like it gets very fucking complicated and messy really, really fast. And I think that's been the biggest shift from like groupie culture to stand culture is we can all also now weigh in on every experience that they have because uh-huh. everything's recorded, everything is published. There are plenty mm-hmm. of groupies that we will never know the names of. The only reason that we know about the ones that exist is because they've all written tell-all books. And so <laughs> we know that. We know who they are. They've talked very publicly about it. But there are a lot of people who don't. And now what we're getting into in, in our current era is it's all documented. You know, that concert footage is documented. I'm sure that that happened at every fucking concert from 1975 to 1995. Like something happened where someone was like, marry me, random backstreet boy. And they kissed their hand or they kissed whoever, like stuff like that happened constantly. But it's only now that we are able to have an entire like multi-generational, multicultural, multi-coastal conversation about what happened in real time. And now it's real messy, real fast, because you're right. You'll never be able to appease you know, a general consensus on like what's an appropriate power dynamic because it's going to be different for everybody's tolerance levels. We don't have a universal uh, morality standard. That's just not a thing that exists. I think that's so right. I think I, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think it's so. I think it's just. I think it is fascinating the ways in which certain aspects of groupie culture have survived and other aspects feel mm-hmm. like the language of that culture has maybe rightfully gone away. It's I, I don't have answers to it. It's just watching this movie in the era of Stan Twitter is such an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, honestly, I think there's something to the elements of groupie culture not having gone away. It just has a new name in that it's like, well, I mean, we're not groupies. We're Band-Aids. It's like yeah. we're, re- we're rebranding the core tenets of what like this level of fandom is constantly into like a new socially acceptable form of it. I mean, we were talking (laughs) even yesterday. uh, I read this article and whenever I say I read this article, it means I watched a TikTok about it. Um, But (laughs) I just are quoting TikToks every single time you read an article (laughs) on the show. No, Uh, but in this instance, it really was a TikTok. But she was talking about how the way that language has evolved because we're trying to make things seem more unique or edgy or interesting or morally superior. And one of the things she brought up is somebody saying that they wanted a platonic polycule and everyone going, so you want friends. (laughs) <laughs> like you, that's what you you want friends. A platonic polycule is friends. Or like she had a friend who turned. It was a uh, a cis woman who turned like twenty five, and suddenly she's like, I think I'm developing a breeding kink, and she's like, or your biological clock is ticking and you have baby <laughs> fever. Like, like, and the, the ultimate consensus was some things are just fucking boring. Like, and it's okay. You don't have to like add these language to it. And I feel like stand culture, like we've tried so hard to distance ourselves from groupie culture because of the negative connotations the same way that like I know plenty of full service sex workers who are like I'm a hooker bitch and they are very like indignant about it like don't call me a sex worker I am a hooker and they're very proud of that but there's been this like weird overcorrection so like there are some people in stan culture where it's like yes are you are you a Nikki stan sure are you a Nikki groupie maybe like what are you what are you and like we've we've tried so hard to distance ourselves from groupies because in our brains we're like, oh, this means, you know, 10 other negative connotations and not what it just actually means. 
Yeah. I, oh my God. That's so well said because it is, it is something that, look, I, I was a sex worker for a really long time. Um, the only reason I don't use the term that I used to use is because it was rent boy and that feels wrong now. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I totally hear you that it is so much of this is about self-determining language and the idea of what labels we want to place on ourselves and what labels we want to place on our groups. One of the things that feels consistent actually from groupie culture or at least groupie culture as depicted in almost famous to stand culture today is there are these moments in the movie. Russell has one penny has one. I think Sapphire has one towards the end where they talk about like what the music means to them. And they talk about like specifically like how Penny sees the music and like how much she loves it and how much it defines everything. And like, you know, she loves the song. She knows all the words to the songs, especially the bad ones, like all this stuff. And I think that's something that I think you still see today. And I think this movie does such a good job of capturing a thing that I think has never really captured. Well, you know, like bad examples, like fanboys and stuff. But like where this idea of like what it is to love something in a way that's kind of romantic, that's not just like, isn't it funny how obsessive these people are? It's like, Mm -hmm. no, this means something like this is a kind of love that's like a little deeper than just like, I like Simpsons quotes. Like, and (laughs) I say that as someone who like, I love, I feel romantic about the Simpsons. I have a Simpsons tattoo on my arm, but like this movie captures how I actually feel about like the things that I love rather than the way a lot of like movies that depict fans. Oh, totally. I mean, I get really defensive. I mean, I playfully mock her as much as humanly possible because she's my little sister, but my little sister is a hardcore K-pop stan. Like she is, (laughs) she is army all day. She has BTS tattoos. Like that's her thing. And so many people like to mock her for that. And I'm like, it's deeper than that. Like, it's not just, Oh, I'm really obsessed with this fandom. Like it means something. It's life changing. It speaks to her on a level, the same way that, you know, religion speaks to some people. And I think that there's something really beautiful in that. And I think you're right. I think almost famous really gets that because yeah, Sapphire has my favorite thing about it where she's, you know, she's criticizing the other girls and she's like, they don't know what it feels like to love a band so much that it physically hurts. And I, I think love that scene. it's really wonderful because I think that that is that is so true for so many people where there's some form of art or media that you love so much that it physically pains you because it, you ache for it. Yes. Especially this movie being really, really kind to the Beach Boys in a way that movies aren't kind to the Beach Boys because I love Brian Wilson and I wish that he has a good day every day. Aww. (laughs) Seriously, like the amount of times that like I'll just randomly hear Harmony be like, I swear to God, if Mike Love outlives Brian Wilson, I will (laughs) lose my shit and it's probably going to happen because Brian Wilson had a harder life than Mike and Mike fucking sucks and she just goes on these tirades and I'm like, you really fucking love Brian Wilson. (laughs) I, he's been through a lot, goddammit, and this was legitimately an argument, we were, it was not even an argument, I was having an argument with Mike Love in a one-way direction while the credits <gasps> were playing for this movie, because it's playing, it's playing off of, uh, the song is off of Surf's Up, which is like the second best Beach Boys albums, minus the song where Mike sings lead vocals, because fuck Mike Love, but like, I just, I don't know, I, I, I feel like... It's, it's that thing where you become obsessed with it and it hurts because you are a fan and you've gone deeper than the music. Like, is Pet Sounds a perfect album? Yes. And that's why it's at the front of the stack of the records that mm, William's yes. sister leaves for him because it's a perfect goddamn album. But 
Is it as good if you don't understand the background of why it was a cult classic until the 90s and everyone overlooked it? Um, that it was a very sad, laborious project where everyone thought Brian was fucking making bad music because he wasn't writing hooks in, in rock and roll Beach Boys pop songs. Like, it's still good, but it's better because you're a fan, because you're obsessed with it and knowing like, oh, his mental health's about to take a really sharp downturn. And this was like that beautiful shooting star moment where it was all perfect. Like... That hurts me, and I understand that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually, Philip Seymour Hoffman has that great speech with the girl from NCIS at the beginning. Yeah. Um, the, about uh, the guess who, where he's like, uh, he's like, the doors? Yeah. Jim Morrison is a drunken buffoon <laughs> passing, it itself, passing himself off as a poet. The, you know, the doors are are joyfully drunken buffoons and that's what makes them poetic. Like that is, or the guess who I mean. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I think that idea of like just loving this thing that's dumb, this thing that is stupid is the thing Sapphire says of to love something so much that it physically hurts. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the thing Penny says of like, when you're feeling lonely, you can just go to the record store and see all your friends. Like mm -hmm. it's, I, I feel like this movie time and time again, just gets at what it is to love art. And I think that's the reason why this movie beyond the many trans feelings that it gave me beyond all these things. I think that is just what it, it resonates with over and over again. It's just like, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, we were talking about pro wrestling, mm -hmm. which is the silliest thing there is. But there've been times where pro wrestling has made me cry where yeah. it's like, Oh my God, this is beautiful and emotional and affecting. And I love this, even though it's super fucking dumb. I got so emotional when Phil came back and then he fucking broke all of our hearts. I know <laughs> he works with children. Yeah. But no, speaking of Philip Seymour Hoffman and I, I want to talk about his character for a little second here. Um, William can call him at all hours of the night, no matter what time zone he's in and he's going to be awake and he's going to talk to this kid as like just a, you know, a middle-aged music critic. And he's like, yeah, I'll have time for my biggest fan because I probably don't have a lot of those. And he sits at home and just listens to like Iggy Pop and like early Lou Reed. And he has like really pretentious, like rock and roll is dead. But now here's like the cool alternative, like stuff that's going to influence every indie band from here on out. <laughs> if, if, if William or Penny Lane don't go out and do things and become friends, get to live the rock and roll lifestyle... They get hurt, but is that better than Buster Lane or whatever his name is? Oh, Lester Bang. Lester Bang. Then him sitting at home by himself with no friends being miserable, but he doesn't have his feelings hurt. The band doesn't let him down by getting too close and becoming friends or falling in love. He just sits at home and is miserable, but he has integrity oh. about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that character is... There are a couple things in that character. There's the the speech about like women will always be problems for guys like us, which turns mm -hmm. out was real true in a whole way that Lester <laughs> Bangs didn't, didn't intend it. Um, that's what most of the great art of the world is about. And I think there's something, there's something really sad about that character, but I also think there's something interesting about, especially in the age of the internet, the idea of like a man in his mid forties, a kid who's 15 bonding over a thing that they both love mm -hmm. in a way that is totally innocent yeah, no, like, I love that. It's just like, and I think we see that a lot now with Twitter and with forums where you don't know how old the other like people on that subreddit for the band you love are or like whatever, but people are just like, or wrestling talking about their mm -hmm. favorite matches and stuff. And it's like, you don't know if you're talking to, 
you don't know who you're talking to, but you're like having these moments of connection over these things. Yeah. Like I, we didn't talk about like our introductions of when we found this thing, at least not BJ and me, but it was, I found almost famous because everyone talked about how good the soundtrack was on a classic rock forum that I was in at like 17 talking to like dudes who were in their fifties who kept going like Queen sucks because they're not as good as the grateful dead. And I'm having perfectly like normal, but heated conversations with grown ass men in like, I don't know. Kansas, Canada, I don't know where they are. Which I, part of me loves and also hates that era of the internet because now with, you know, outside of like Reddit and forums, social media has made it so that we do for the most part kind of know who we're talking to at any given moment. Um, And I do kind of miss that anonymity because there is something also really special about Lester and William's relationship that we don't get to see very often because, you know, we're having more nuanced conversations where suddenly like even age gap friendships have been viewed as like problematic mm-hmm. in our current era. And it's like, it's a mentorship friends. Like yeah. it's, it's okay to learn from your elders. Like that's a, that's a good thing. We probably should do that more often. Uh, I think a lot of issues we have currently is because there are such wide gaps between the generations because they're not communicating with each other. Um, And so getting to see this sort of friendship, which is platonic, which is innocent, which is just centered around like work and music, I think is very fascinating. And I, I don't know, I miss, I miss these sorts of dynamics. So I just had a thought and entertain, entertain me on this thought as I work my way through it clumsily on mic. Um, so we don't have a lot of uh, like mentorship relationships now. Uh, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult in online spaces, but that's that's wholly what this is for him. And it's really interesting to have him learning, you know, clumsily because uh, Lester's maybe not the most uh, the, the most down most down guy. He's he's a little clumsy and bitter and lonely. So you know he's doing his best. But think about the band. They're opening for Sabbath. How much do you think they hang out with Black Sabbath? They don't. Yeah. They're not learning from the people that they're they're looking up to. They're they're they people they want to be their mentors, the, the people they're a fan of. They're not learning that. They're learning the perceived version of it. So it's just like, oh my God, Ozzy bit the head off of a bat and he snorted an- a line of ants one time because he's hardcore <laughs> like that. They have the legends and the story that is being put out there is like this rock and roll persona. And I think having that healthy like age gap relationship is how you have discussions to avoid all of the bad things that exist in rock and roll culture and, you know, groupie culture that like feels exploitive where it's just like, don't have sex with underage girls, you fucking weirdo. That is not a well had discussion. But if you surround yourself with good company, then that's how that happens rather than just your perception of what a golden god is. It's so true. And even that golden God scene is a grown man with a bunch of high schoolers Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way that feels, I mean, there's a lot of acid and alcohol involved, but feels relatively like a simpler time. It feels relatively innocent of just like uh, any of the creepy sort of connotations that other aspects of this movie are harder to like still deal with. It doesn't feel like McConaughey and Dazed and Confused, which is the point of that character. And it's interesting. The other other moment that's interesting around ages and the way these things are presented and whatever is like, there is a threesome in this movie with presumably all people who are underage or I don't know, Sapphires maybe. Possibly. Sapphires maybe like 
18, but like I definitely think Anna Paquin is being presented as a teen and William we know is 15. And there's this like, we don't see it, but there's a very sweet, innocent threesome between these three people. Uh And I think there's something kind of magical about the way that this movie captures what it feels like where it's like, Oh, I had like a really new experience that I wasn't ready for. I wasn't prepared for, but I was ready for. And it's kind of silly and it's kind of sweet and like, it's awkward. And I just, I, I don't know. I, it, it makes the mo it makes that one moment in the hotel room. So disappointing because with Penny and William and the kiss, because this earlier moment where, William's about to have a threesome and Penny's looking on from the hallway and they kind of share a look and she's like, does the thing where she puts the hand in front of her eyes and then like spreads her fingers to like peek Mm -hmm. is the fucking cutest thing that's ever happened. It's so cute. And like, there's also this really sweet, uh, this is sound really dumb. It's very Shakespearean in a way, almost like Midsummer Night's Dream where they're like, dancing around him and taking his clothes off. And it is so clearly we're having fun and this is fun and exciting and we're all going to have a good time. Like there's nothing weird about it. And he's just like, his smile is from ear to ear. Cause he's like, what is happening? And it's like, just it's Shakespearean. Like it's the only way that I can describe it. And it's just very, very lovely. And I think that that is such a moment for a lot of people. And I definitely had moments like that where I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. This is so cool when I was that age. And I don't know. Like, I think like as you get older, a lot of those moments, like they're, they're so few and far in between so that when they do happen, they're even more exciting. Yeah. And especially like knowing, knowing that we were doing this episode with you and knowing how much you love this movie. (laughs) Um, I, I was looking for things, I was looking at things in a slightly different lens than the last time I watched it. Cause it's, it's admittedly been a while. I think it's, I was like t- maybe 10 years since I watched this movie last. And honestly, like there's that scene though. And it feels very delicate in a way that like, they're going to have a threesome, but they're also still treating him like one of the girls. That sequence of the movie is the sequence that I feel like really uh, <laughs> gave me a lot of there's a lot of egg behavior going on in that There's scene. There's so much egg behavior. There's the scene where he's, because also in that sequence is like him in the bathtub writing and she comes in to pee. And there's this thing where they like ask him to take the laundry. And it's just a lot of like, you're a girl. Like it's really, they're treating him like a girl. And that sequence in particular, the threesome, all of it just feels very much like a, a pretty good representation of what it feels like to be discovering your transness. I mean, even if you want to like pull that back even further to me, it feels like, you know, I like I had a lot of girlfriends growing up and I was never invited over to sleepovers at a certain age. Cause like, Oh, well, you can't have boys intermingling with the girls. Cause dad's like, oh, I know how boys are. And <laughs> it almost feels like it's, it's a simpler, more sweet time when like, you don't even think about genders. Like, that's not even like, oh, no, it's not like, oh, hey, there's a boy in the girl's room. It's just kind of like, no, we're all just hanging out and it's not even really a factor. Now let's have sex. Yeah, well, and w- that's such an interesting point because William, it feels like William is at a sleepover with the girls for yeah. a really long time. Yeah, it definitely does. And they, there's just a level of comfortability that we don't get to see between, you know, boys and girls of this age like that just isn't a thing like the the peeing for like example is a really really good like visual representation because like penny like she doesn't give a shit she's like 
I'm peeing. And he is very much like, I, I, I thought that I w- we would do other things before I would see you pee. <laughs> like, because in his head, he's got, you know, all of these, you know, these milestones that you're supposed to to reach before, like, that becomes a thing. Like, we see this all the time on, like, like Reddit relationship forums of, like, I've never farted in front of my partner. What's going to happen when that happens? <laughs> Meanwhile, Harmony and I are like, Harmony peed with the door open on our first date. We're like, whatever. Who cares? We're here now. And it's- I'm classy. <laughs> But it's very much that sort of that sort of energy where like he has to accept it's fine because he you know he's not experienced the world yet, but they've been fine all along with him. Like they they bought into him immediately. I have to go home. But like speaking of vibes, I remember um, I first the first scene I ever saw from this movie was an upload of uh, I think it was probably like whatever the Vimeo the Daily Motion maybe was it sure. probably what it was sure. at the time. Um, it was the tiny dancer scene. Yes, but um, it, that that scene uh, it just it's just it's vibes. It's optimistic and uplifting, and it feels really sensational in a way that like feels almost out of character for the particular place the band is at at the time but like they don't care and there's there's a thing about that that i think is interesting where despite this being a rock and roll movie like pretty firmly the songs that get like the best showcases aren't rock songs like it's maybe a gentle led zeppelin song like tangerine or two different elton john songs or stevie wonder and great Joni mitchell needle drop too of course yeah and i think that there's something to almost a green room aspect of this where, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, my, my secret desert Island band is actually Simon and Garfunkel. I love them. And it's not punk as shit at all. There's something about like Elton John is clearly a soft rock pop artist, but he was good enough that all the rock people came around and were like, come on though. Like he's Elton John. He's fucking amazing. He's, he writes some of the best songs of all time. And I feel like there's a, something to be said about like them letting their guards down and not being tough guys who are like, yeah, I really like Hocus Pocus by Focus or whatever, <laughs> you know, cool dad rock pentatonic scale band they were listening to at the time. It's like, no, it's all about the melody and the vibes and like just enjoying this thing that is outside of our wheelbox that feels a little bit more real than just sex, drugs and rock and roll. That sequence and so many moments in this movie, I feel like succeed where so many other things fail of like, we're going to like that. That scene is such a magic trick uh, of like, we're just going to show the whole band slowly start singing. Mm -hmm. Everybody on the bus slowly start singing tiny dancer. It's going to be like unquestionably moving. And it ends with this great punchline of William turning to Penny and saying, I have to go home and her putting her hand in front of his face, like a magic trick and saying you are home. Mm -hmm. And it just like, it burns every part of your body. Like it just feels like warm all over and it's so great. And that continues on to like, when you see Stillwater perform it, the movie presents them as good. And then the music is pretty good. Like Mm -hmm. it's just, this is a movie that I feel like it's a movie that loves music and the way that it uses music 
lives up to the way that it talks about music. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, it's Cameron Crowe. He knows his music inside and out. And it's really funny to think about how much this move, this movie's music budget would cost oh. in like five years. Once, once like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and ACDC figure out that like their logo and their branding is their most powerful tool in terms of like preserving their legacy and like their t-shirts start ending up in JCPenney and shit like that. That's when classic rock, I think, picks up momentum back again as like a respected legacy act. But the music that you have, which there are, I don't know, a million songs, probably like 80 different licensed songs in this movie. It's an absurd amount. And they all help set the scene. They build the world. They do all of these very, uh, it's, it's not the way that Dazed and Confused is where it feels like all of the most overplayed songs you get in like. Midwest classic rock sure. stations. There are deeper cuts from everyone's discographies in here, and it makes it feel fresher, especially to my ears as somebody who is more than familiar with their fair share of classic rock. It makes it feel more magical and a little bit off the beaten path, and it's such an important part of this movie, I think. Well, and there's a cut song, or there's a cut scene, because they couldn't get the license, even though he is, you know, friends with them. They couldn't get Stairway to Heaven. Oh, yeah. It's because Zeppelin. I mean, Zeppelin, they love Cameron Crowe and hate everyone else. Yeah. But like they will not give anyone Stairway to Heaven until they're all dead. And then the label goes, yeah, anybody can have it. Just pay us. And there's a DVD on the DVD or on the, I, I think it's on the iTunes extras too. You can watch the cutscene and it says like, start playing Stairway to Heaven now. Uh-huh. And it's a terrible scene. Is it? It's a scene where he, <laughs> William is convincing his mom to let him go on tour. By like showing the artistic merit of rock music. Oh, really? And it's a scene. It kind of mirrors the America scene. The yeah, from, uh, uh, her with, sister leaving. His, yeah. yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, I agree. This movie is really smart with its needle drops, and it doesn't have one that you're like, oh, that's a little on the nose or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, in some cases, it's because they he tried to do an on the nose thing and they wouldn't let him. <laughs> <laughs> like Stairway to Heaven was a joke in like 1990 when they did Wayne's World. Yeah. And so I wrote a piece for Slash Film uh, sometime last year about movies that paid like really big bucks for needle drops. And Almost Famous's music budget was um, double than what most movies are allotted. They ended up spending $3.5 million in music licensing alone. And <laughs> oh that's, my God. that's like 2000s money. So like we're not even accounting for inflation here. And uh, that averages, considering there are 53 songs used in this film, about $66,000 for each song. And obviously, like, that's just across the board. But something like Zeppelin is going to be infinitely more expensive than, like, the raspberries. Um, But they spent so much fucking money on music. And yeah, it's 2000. There is no way. Like, that would be so much more expensive. And people like Led Zeppelin have gotten really, really picky in how their music is used. Um, I don't remember which title it was, but it was a Ben Affleck movie. I don't know. It might be like Argo or something. Um, But in one of those movies, they use a, a song from Led Zeppelin. And their agreement was not only do you have to pay like an ass load of money, but also there has to be a shot where you like take the record sleeve out from the shelf and you can very clearly see like a fucking product placement. And then you flip the record and you place it down just so and the camera has to show the top of the record. Like they have so many like wild stipulations to be able to use their music. And the fact that Cameron Crowe has such a good rapport with all these bands allowed him to get a lot of the songs for cheaper than if anyone else on the planet would have asked for them. I was going to say, having cleared a number of songs for TV shows, 
the fact that 60 grand average in 2000s money is with the songs that are in this movie is a testament to his relationship with these bands. Cause that is a <laughs> deal and a half for some of these songs. You, it's shocking how much, uh, even songs you've never heard of cost, yeah. this point, which is good. Bands should get paid for their music, but of course. it's, uh, it, it's a testament to, to Cameron Crowe's pull. Licensing is, is a lot. And knowing that he spent that much money on a movie that, did not turn a profit. I know. It's even more heartbreaking. <laughs> I know. And he wrote, uh, I think his wife at the time. Oh, Nancy. Nancy Wilson. From Heart, yeah. From Heart, yeah. Did all the music for Stillwater, like wrote all those songs. He, She did all of the music that's not licensed. And I think he co-wrote, like Cameron Crowe himself actually co-wrote some of the songs with her for that. But uh, she's the main composer for all of their stuff. And I think you can hear it too. I think Stillwater definitely has like, Heart If Men vibes, which I'm very into because I fucking love heart. Um, so yeah, they, no one else on the planet could have made this movie. Like it had to be a Cameron Crowe movie. Yeah. Stillwater, kind of a good band. Kind of into their music. Yeah. Fever Dog's kind of a good song. They're like a perfectly legit dad rock band. <laughs> also, just real quick shout out to my favorite uh, coming out in any movie ever. Uh, Larry the drummer. I think Larry is his name. Coming out when he thinks the plane's going to crash is uh, just a true chef's kiss moment. <laughs> so I think this is definitely a title that we could talk about for a hundred more years. I mean, we haven't even touched on like the random amazing appearances by people like Rain Wilson and Mitch Hedberg and Mark Marin and all these like random people who are wonderful that just show up for a cup of coffee. But I think we have covered Almost Famous quite a bit. So Harmony, the question is... Almost Famous is inviting you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? This movie feels like a fantasy documentary in like the best way possible, where it it, it feels like such a perfect time capsule of its time in a way that I think a lot of really nostalgic movies aren't for like the 70s and 80s, where they're, they're not authentic enough, they're not sincere enough. This movie's marvelous. It's 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 so close to being perfect. There's a couple things we criticize that are just not quite there and like some discussions that would have just honestly bogged the movie down and honestly the char- the characters are messy. So like I'm not going to say that like they're perfect in some of their actions and taste, but it's a no, it's it's a fantastic movie. I love Almost Famous. I loved getting to sit down and talk to Jacqueline. Uh, just another excuse for us to hang out whenever. This is this is great. Big fan. Jacqueline, thank you so much for bringing this to us. Uh, where can people find you on the internet if you want them to find you? And if you have any projects coming up to plug, now is your time. Um, people can find me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Jacqueline P. Moore. Um, and, you know, watch uh, some of the stuff I've already done. Queer as Folk on Peacock, Dear White People on Netflix. And, um, you know, watch this space uh, for more stuff. Beautiful. And as always, friends, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, I am very excited about this one. What cool band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Almost Famous? So I could go with like a very traditional Led Zeppelin type band, but like... Just go listen to Greta Van Fleet if you want to do that. Like, whatever. <laughs> like, if that's your flavor, you've already got a band that sounds exactly like them you can go listen to. The band I'm shouting out 
actually, though, is a band called Rookie and their self-titled album from 2020. If you are a fan of, like, That 70s Show, then you're familiar with the main theme performed by Cheap Trick. This is very much the energy of, like, a Cheap Trick or a big star. So the Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, rock and roll is dead, here's all the new stuff kind of generation, that's where we're going into power pop and, like, sentimental indie rock and cool shit like that. This is that brand of the 70s, and I am a huge fan. Amazing. So yeah, check out Rookie and they'll obviously be added to the playlist that we keep updating. Um, In case you didn't know, we have a playlist with all the bands we recommend. So give that a listen. But friends, we will see you next time. Thank you again for listening. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. These are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? And then it just becomes an industry of cool. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.